Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic, a storytelling podcast featuring the amazing people of the Magic the Gathering community. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Join me and my guests as we share stories about what MTG means to us, how we got started playing Magic, the ups, the downs, the hilarious stories, and everything in between. I'm speaking with Rich Hagen, commentator and host of the official Magic Coverage team. Rich has a background in performance art and broadcasting. Rich tells us about how he got started doing coverage all the way back in the day from Pro Tour Kuala Lumpur. Rich has grown as a commentator and also Magic coverage has grown into what we see today. Rich started off as a commentator but now mostly does production and is behind the scenes. I caught up with Rich last year right before PAX 2016 and the World Championships. I hope you enjoy this rare interview with the charming Rich Hagen. Hi everyone, welcome to Kitchen Table Magic. I'm your host, Sam Tang, and I am here today with Rich Hagen. Rich, how are you? Uh, I am uh, jet-lagged, but other than that, I'm utterly fabulous as always, thank you. Thank you so much for having me over. Oh, not at all, yes. Welcome to my luxury palatial suite, as we <laughs> like to say here at the Crown Plaza downtown Seattle. It's wonderful. Rich, let's start at the beginning. Could okay. you tell me where you're from, where you grew up, and how you got started playing Magic? Yeah, sure. So, um, I'm English. Shocker. Um, and I was grew up in London, uh, only child, always a performer. That's like front and center is that from the age of two, I've been on stages performing, singing, you know, dancing, telling stupid jokes. Um, I won't sing you the first song I ever sang on stage, which is a fabulous number called Tiddly Winky Woo, um, which I still remember from 42 years ago. Uh, but anyway, grew up, uh, loving games, loving sports, um, loving performance, um, just always been a musician and performer and writer and just basically everything creative. I'm not practical at all and can't really tie my own shoelaces, um, or pretty much anything else, get dressed in the dark, um, as they say. Uh, and I got into magic completely by chance. Um, my wife is not a gamer in really any sense. Um, not, not her thing at all, but we had moved to a new part of the country. We were, didn't have a lot of friends around, not a lot of support network, and we were looking for an activity to do together. It wasn't really about a game, not least because we didn't expect that would be an area where we did have a lot in common. But I went down to a place called Guildford in Surrey, went to Avatar Games and Comics, and I said, I want a game that I can play with my wife. You can insert your own joke here, obviously, at home. Uh, and they said, yeah, you want Magic the Gathering. And they gave me a two-player 6th edition starter set. And there was this tiny little back room. It was basically a comic store. It wasn't really a game store. It was a comic store. But they had this hollowed out back room with a table. And it just turned out that purely by, you know, providence, chance, whatever you want to, divine intervention, however you want to describe it, there were probably 10 people there. I was the 11th. All 10 had either already played on the Pro Tour or would go on to play multiple times on the Pro Tour. That's amazing. Yeah. So to me, in that sense, my magic birthright was competition. Uh, so this is sort of October. My first tournament was the Tempest pre-release in September 1997, October 1997. And so within sort of six weeks of starting the game, I was driving people to PTQs. Um, so to me, magic has only ever been a competitive sport rather than 
to be fair, we, my wife and I did play three or four turns of the first game. Uh, and then I tried to cast Giant Growth on my River Boa. And she went, so it's a 2-1 and it's a, it's going to take two damage, but you're giving it plus three, plus five. Ah, too many numbers. And that was the end of my wife and playing magic. <laughs> um, so, uh, but we moved on a bit since then, hopefully. So, uh, yes. So that's, that's how I got into magic. That's wonderful. It was a great environment to be in with all those pros. Uh, yes. Bear in mind, England's a tiny place relative to, say, the States, where obviously the vast bulk of great magic players have come from, particularly at that point. You know, remember, this is only three years, three, four years into the game. Um, this is 1997 when John Ormerod of the UK is finishing second at Pro Tour Mainz. The overwhelming bulk of Pro Tour Top 8s are all from the United States. This is the time when nobody from Japan has ever drafted except at a Pro Tour. Um, very small communities, very focused. You, in a way, you couldn't help but win if you were with that many you know, good players within the UK. I mean, when I say there were 10 players who play on the Pro Tour... That's probably half of the competent UK Magic players at that time wow. were in the one room and the other half were just up the road kind of thing, you know? So I learned a lot of harsh lessons very quickly, I suppose. That's amazing. And you have such an interest in sports from a very early age. Sure. There was a board game that involved sports, a soccer card game. Oh, Bright Play Cup Football, dear God. Yeah, I've, I've been playing that with my son lately. There is, it's a zero skill game. It's 100% luck. It's essentially a simulation. You just have 32 fo- soccer teams and they're labeled A, B, C, and D. And the A's are better than the B's and the B's are better than the C's, C's better than the D's. And you just turn over these giant cards with cartoon images of sort of snapshots from soccer matches. Yeah, and and it says, and the ball comes in and the centre forward heads the ball towards goal. Unfortunately, goals are made of wood as well as air. And it hits the post and no goals for anyone. And so, okay, so it's still nil-nil. And then you turn over the next card and it says, the multi-million pound star striker shoots and scores. And then it's goals for A's, B's and C's. So if you're playing a D team, you don't get a goal and ah. everyone else doesn't. So you, you just you just play this out. And I, I still have my original set of this. And there are somewhere tape recordings, cassette recordings of me aged I suppose, seven, um, commentating on these imaginary games of, of soccer. So I've been at the commentary business for a long time, it turns out. What a wonderful story that you started off playing a card game with a lot of competition as its like backdrop and yeah. you were commentating on it. And here you are in the future, in the present, commentating on it as well. Yeah, there is there is certainly, time, again, an only child. So, a lot of time to myself. Also, worth bearing in mind that for a lot of my first few years of, of life, my mother was very ill a lot. So, I had a lot of time to myself. Um, and I can very clearly remember that my idea of a good weekend was to sort of do board game Olympics mm-hmm. in my bedroom. So I'd get all the board games that I had that had some possible connection to sport. Um, and then, you know, I'd, so I used to have the, the Superstars board game from the TV series. And, you know, I'd do like the 100 meters from that and the swimming. And, and it wasn't Michael Phelps then, it'd probably be David Wilkie or someone, but an Adrian Morehouse. But, uh, yeah, so I suppose I've always, looking back, and obviously this is kind of reverse engineering it because I wasn't thinking of it at the time, I was just having fun. But uh, 
the number of imaginary horse races and soccer matches and cricket matches and swimming and Olympic 100 metre finals I've commentated on in my mind, um, or even out loud on occasion. Um, yeah, I can, I can clearly see the path, why it kind of makes sense that I've ended up where I have. There was a time in the European magic scene that you worked on Mox Radio. Yeah, so Mox Radio, it's on the one hand, I'm really proud of it. Creatively, I'm very proud of it. I am not a businessman at all. I am hopeless. I would basically rather give anyone anything for free than negotiate a price for it. Just life's too short. Um, and I'm very incredibly lucky that I found a path where people have chosen to give me money to do the things I want to do anyway, which obviously this is genius and fantastic. But Mox Radio, I saw an opportunity. This is going back. This is in 1997. So almost as soon as I started playing, Mm -hmm. I saw an opportunity for radio coverage of magic. But the internet got in the way. And the basic math then was that you could take four hours, roughly, at 56k on a modem Uh to download a reasonable quality 10 or 15 minute audio clip. Oh my goodness. So basically, if you did a weekly two hour show, it would take a week to download the thing. (laughs) So this clearly wasn't going to work. But the bones of Mox Radio existed as early as 1997. In fact, at that point, it was called like the Telerian Academy because that's what was around. That was the card around at the time. And I was like, well, look, here's a place... I suppose, a sort of prototypical limited resources kind of thing or or just resources as it would have been. And it wasn't until 2005 that that eventually came to fruition. Um, and I have told that story before, um, but the short version is um, having been a performer like right from, as I say, from two years old, uh, the path was very straightforward. It was natural. So you start playing instruments and then so you start then you do music at school and you do more instruments. You get your grades and then, well, it looks like university's beckoning. So then you do university and then you're in demand to conduct shows. So you do that. And so if you're conducting all these singers who want singing lessons, so you might as well teach singing. And so I ended up doing a lot of uh, work with uh, West End uh, dancers who wanted to be better singers. Um, and all of that just kind of flowed very naturally. And I never really chose with a capital C any of those things. That was just, well, that's sort of who I was. Uh, but in 2005, my father was dying. Um, and it was a pivotal point for me because at that point, 2005, I was 33. And I'd got to 33 again without having really chosen. Um, and, and I sort of, you know, classic thing of life's too short and whatever. And, and I saw what I wanted and what I wanted was within five years to be presenting the Pro Tour. And it took three. Um, uh-huh. and, and they've not kicked me out since. <laughs> well, the magic community is definitely a better place and coverage is a much better place with you here. Oh, what a lovely man. Really, you're very charming and, the, and your energy is wonderful. And you also present a very good pace with the action that's going on. I love stories. I'm in some ways unusual as a magic player in that I think... Um, just for reference, I've just come off doing uh, an amateur production of Oliver, uh, mm-hmm. the stage musical with my daughter down in London. So I'm, I'm quite musically in tune at the moment, no pun intended. And one of the things that I always teach people is the hardest second in music 
is from doing it perfectly half a second late to doing it perfectly half a second early. Because when you're half a second late, when you're more than half a second late, you're just clueless. You don't know what's going on. But most people can know what the right idea is, know what they want to do. But once they understand that it's now and here it is, they're half a second late and they haven't breathed enough. They haven't mentally prepared for the next phrase enough. They haven't looked far enough ahead in the song to not spend it all at once or whatever, whatever it is. They're just permanently trying to play catch up. They're half a second behind. And the harder second of all is getting from there to where as you are singing phrase two of the opening verse, you are making sure that it's at, you know, 40% of your limit because you know in your head where you're spending the 70 and the 80 and the 92 that is the peak of the song just before the very end. And I think most Magic players, when they watch or when they're playing, they want to be half a second early because that's how you win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, of course, I've, I've presented you this time ago for you to lightning bolt. I wish you to lightning bolt it. So when you do, I'm already two turns ahead of that because if I hadn't wanted you to get the lightning bolt out of your hand, I wouldn't have made the time ago so that you could. That's great magic. That's the half second early version of magic. Mm-hmm. But as a commentator, I like to be half a second late because to me, magic is an unveiling story. I don't necessarily, I mean, it's all the balance, of course, but I don't necessarily want someone to tell me on turn two, this is archetype A against archetype B, archetype A is going to win. Now, I don't mind them telling me that archetype A is super strong and B is a big underdog because you just presented me one of the classic storylines ever. Can the underdog beat the favourite? I want to find that out sequentially with each turn of the card, not be told, yeah, and that means it's over. Because sometimes it's over in chapter four and there's still seven chapters of the book to go. Mm-hmm. I want to find out in chapter 11 or maybe 10 where the big finish comes, right? I mean, that's that's your classic storytelling. So storytelling is my is my thing. And certainly if I do have one ability that transcends the strategy of the game, it's that I hear from a lot of uh, what I would, I'm not sure casual is the right word, but people who would say, listen, I don't play magic competitively. In fact, I barely play magic at all. But when you, the pro tour is on in my home four, five, six times a year, it sounds like exciting things are happening. Interesting, cool, life-changing things are happening. And that's great because it means that we are successfully telling stories, even if we haven't use the language that they are necessarily going to understand because when just this past weekend um at the modern gp bolt you bolt you bolt you to win the gp well if you know what lightning bolt does that means nothing but the way gabby sparts commentated on that turn was lightning bolt lightning bolt lightning bolt it was fantastic because you don't need to know what lightning bolt bolt is you just heard the same thing happen three times. The second one was more exciting than the first one. The third one was incredible. You don't even need to know what magic is to have heard that run of 10 seconds and understand the story because that story is universal. Yes, it really makes a big difference when the coverage team is in tune with not just the mechanics of the game, the pacing of the game, the players, the decks, but also the storyline that's being drawn out in each match. 
look, it's it's really hard because I do get, and I don't, I mean, your kitchen table magic is the title here. I don't know how many aspiring Pro Tour champions you have listening to the show, but we do understand that it is very frustrating to the hardcore strategic element when we are not discussing what the sideboarding should be or what the third best line of play might be rather than just, you know, this is what's actually happening or what we think might happen. It is a really tough balance because we only get to do one thing at once. Right. And there are a lot of different audiences that we're trying to to furnish with what they want out of their version of, of magic and it and it is difficult sometimes. Rich, can you bring us back to one of your early Pro Tour coverages? What was it like to be on the big stage for the first time? So I feel incredibly lucky. I am very definitely a control freak, hopefully only in good ways. Uh, But when I was afforded the opportunity to do uh, Pro Tour Kuala Lumpur in 2008, I knew going into it that Randy Bueller was not going to be there uh, mm-hmm. because Randy was working for Wizards at the time. He was a uh, high-level exec and he was working on a big project and he was I, – I don't know quite how true it was, but the urban legend was that he was in some Swiss alpine ski resort locked away with, you know, the gods of Hasbro kind of thing for the weekend. So, I knew flying out to Kuala Lumpur that I was, I was going to be on the, the, the video coverage. But it was not clear to me until just before that Brian David Marshall was not going to be there because he became super ill and just wasn't allowed to fly. And I will never stop being grateful to BDM for not being at Pro Tour Kuala Lumpur in 2008, <laughs> which sounds terrible. And we, we joke about it from time to time. The thing is, if he had been there, I would utterly have been the junior partner. I would have done everything he asked of me willingly and gratefully. I mean, this is Brian David Marshall. You know, this is someone I've watched for years and years and, and love. And so that that's the dynamic it would have been. And everyone who was watching would have had the opportunity to go, there's BDM, where's Randy? And all I would have been would be not Randy. But instead, because BDM wasn't there, I was with Bill Stark, who again, to my eternal gratitude, said, yes, Rich, a lot that weekend. And I clearly remember sitting down with him. I said, look, you're much better than I'm at magic, but performance is what I do. If you let me look after you, we will be fine because I do know how to work an audience. And the fact you can't see them doesn't mean they're not there. So between us, we're not going to be Randy and BDM. We're going to be something else. And the something else, some people will love, some people will hate, but that's okay. But what we will be is the thing we want to be possible exception of singing take me out to the card game uh, <laughs> during the semi-finals uh, which was uh, not warmly received it's fair to say especially by my boss i think we did okay the freedom for for that show to become for want of a better term mine in execution meant everything and you know here we are almost a decade on and so much of what i do now is behind the scenes at events various and a lot of that is only because I was accidentally afforded the opportunity. I was handed the keys to the Porsche, you know, um, is is still how it feels. And I, I do feel incredibly lucky for that. And Rich, now what is your role on the coverage team? Uh, so the reason I love it so much, uh, people, people who no, don't know Magic that well, you know, I'm trying to explain what I do. And I say, well, it's, it's a card game, Magic the Gathering. And they sort of go, how can you spend all your time on one thing? And I said, well, that's the thing. I don't. 
Like in any given week, I might be working on a project to do with graphics for a Grand Prix, um, like automating some data thing. Um, I might be preparing the media guide for a forthcoming Pro Tour. I might be watching past GP coverage to give feedback to commentators. I might be working with Greg Collins, who's my boss, the executive producer on all coverage, to work out the teams, the commentary pairs and so on for forthcoming events. I might be going to an event at an event this this year. I am at every video event there is as the on-site producer. So um, what that really means is that I'm responsible for the stream, I suppose, is a good way of thinking of it. Uh, I have a hand in feature match selection. A lot of people always ask, why, why, why do you choose the feature matches you do? I don't actually choose the feature matches, but I I have a hand in them occasionally, like, can I have him on the front table? I certainly massage them once I have four pairs. Then I'm like, yeah, we want that one live. If you want that on text as well, that's fine. But we need that on video or whatever it is. Um, so I do that. Um, I oversee all the creative content. I design a lot of that graphically and creatively and make sure it actually gets made. Um, and then um, I just deal with the, the sort of the... Uh, the people management of just getting commentators on and off air and uh, and all that stuff. A lot of the choices about what you see on the screen during a GP are mine. So they're my fault or my responsibility, if you like. The overarching vision, um, I'm very much part of a team that does that. And that, again, starts with Greg Collins, the executive producer. Uh, and we have Mike Rosenberg uh, and Garth Avery back at base in Seattle who work on uh, the text coverage and graphics, respectively. And hopefully we all get joined up, the four of us, and then we... Um, attempt to deliver the best the best coverage we can and so that's that's my sort of typical gp weekend uh for pro tours i am the on-air anchor so i am the host of every pro tour and i'm also the producer for everything that is not live match content uh so basically the news desk is is my domain uh if you like so whenever you're bored and thinking why aren't they showing us magic yeah that's the bit that's to do with me so, <laughs> so that's that's how that works I, I sometimes describe um, my job to people who don't quite know but have a lot of sports knowledge. I say, I am simultaneously Chris Berman and I'm also Mike Tirico because I'm down doing play-by-play. Now, I don't do play-by-play as much now. I'm rarely in the booth. Um, a lot of people will consider that a triumph, um, which I, I get. Um, you know, I am not the strongest strategically within the coverage team. And Magic has moved on as well. I think it's fair to say that, you know, when I started in Kuala Lumpur 2008, I think the number of people who could honestly say, look, who's this clown doing just spouting nonsense as play-by-play would have been far fewer than now because now there are so many good Magic players who are starting to understand that Magic broadcasting is a real thing and uh, people who are cutting their teeth on doing streaming, for example, Paul Chion, I think is a, a, a good example of that. Someone who is just clocking up the hours being in front of a microphone in a Magic setting. I think, you know, Magic's still, Magic is still in its infancy if we're if we're going to assume that magic is is forever, for want of a better term, then magic is only air quotes twenty years old. And coverage, remember, it's only four years ago we started covering Pro Tours live. Wow! Apart from Sundays, twenty twelve, we sat in a booth to do Dark Ascension, Pro Tour Dark Ascension in Honolulu. 
and everything came from there. There was no news desk. There was no video wall. There was no second set. There was just, we're in the commentary box. We commentate on a round. We'll squeeze a player in to chat a bit in between the rounds. Four years ago, Sam. That's crazy, you know? And if you think about the history of baseball, I love all sports, but you think of the history of baseball and, you know, the shot heard around the world, and there is exactly one set of footage of that event and of course it's in black and white and it's shot from row 58 of the stands well in some level that's where magic coverage is now that doesn't mean i think it's bad i'm very proud of of what we're accomplishing but when i look 10 15 20 50 years ahead and i look at mlb network for example which means that right now in any country in the world any day of the year you can watch all 162 games of your chosen team i mean we could have you know, Seth Manfield's grandchildren on a streaming channel at the Proto where you can watch all 16 of their rounds with commentary in 50 years' time if magic grows that far because you can see the models of sports parallel with their broadcasting. So we're in the early days. I think we're in exciting times with coverage. Um, I love a lot of the things we do. I think if there's one message, this, this is my sort of soapboxy bit, if there's one message I would get across... When people generally ask, why aren't you doing this? There's a very good chance that we have looked at doing whatever this is. It's not that often that people say, why aren't you doing that? And we go, oh my Lord, why aren't we doing that? Because it's a new concept, Mm -hmm. right? Almost all the time, the answer is we've looked at it. It's not budgetarily practical. It's not physically practical, like, you know, why, why can't you show us, you know, someone said to me the other day, why can't you show all the top 25 at the Pro Tour? I'm like, well, that would mean a feature match area, in theory, up to 25 tables mm-hmm. with 25 overhead cameras. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, like I say, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, that's entirely viable, especially as overhead cameras at that point will just hover invisibly three foot above the table and will cost like, you know, a buck 50 at, se- <laughs> at your local 7-Eleven because that's the way technology continues. People are always overwhelmed at the technology that goes into a Pro Tour when they go behind the curtain and they just see, oh, okay, I've seen you and Rashad at a GP with a couple of commentators in some chairs with a few cameras dotted around. Yeah, this isn't like that, is it? And I said, no, this is basically an NBC outside live broadcast, you know, with trucks and banks of machinery everywhere you look. And it's, wow. it's a serious undertaking. We, you know, we, we do take coverage very seriously. And Rich, I wanted to ask you, how has the use of technology changed Magic the Gathering coverage over the years? <sighs> I mean, the obvious one is that 2012 moment where we shifted from uh, so we we used to stop covering the Pro Tour in our minds. There was this point on Saturday afternoon where basically everyone involved with Sunday would stop work, go off into a back room and plan Sunday. Because on Saturday night, the truck arrived, the broadcast truck arrived. There was no set. There was no uh, overhead lights on the feature match. None, none of that. That all got built after the Swiss on Saturday. And then we had to make sure everything worked on Sunday morning before embarking on what was the start of live coverage um, with the quarterfinals. And now we do draft, followed by playback of draft, followed by three rounds of draft, followed by five rounds of constructed with feature content, like I say, at the video wall in between every round and draft viewer that can give you every pick of every player where in any order you want. And yeah, I, j- I just think the number of 
iterations apart from anything else. That's that's the biggest thing because look, people sometimes say to me, I, th- I think a lot of listeners will know that I play the piano. Uh, and people sometimes say, oh, it's amazing. You're really good at the piano. And I say, well, here's the thing. I'm 44 and I started playing the piano when I was four. If you'd been doing something for 40 years, wouldn't you hope that you were at least mildly competent at that <laughs> thing? Right. Or that someone had told you, time to stop now. Go and do something else before you hurt something. And, you know, now the opportunity with streaming and with so many independent um, tournament series out there, you know, there are people who are being given the opportunity. I'll just pluck a name from the air. Chris Van Meter, right? He is someone who 10 years ago would not have, couldn't have crossed his mind that there would be seats where he would be given many hours to sit and learn to be a broadcaster. And at this point in time, those seats exist. And that's really exciting because it turns out that the best way to get through 40 hours of live broadcasting is to have already done 10,000 hours of live broadcasting or 5,000 or 2,000, ideally not three or four. You know, that that makes a difference. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think just the opportunities that are out there technologically are uh, pretty awesome for Magic. The fact that I'm trying to think, well, is it face-to-face? Face-to-face games in Toronto. They stream their legacy event every Sunday mm-hmm. with commentary. Fantastic, right? It doesn't even matter whether you like Legacy. You don't need to like Legacy just to think it's awesome that it exists. The VSL, I know nothing about Vintage other than there are some very powerful cards in it. But I love watching the VSL and the stuff that Randy does. I think they're amazingly high production. Um, I think they're utterly tremendous entertainment. They happen to be magic entertainment, but they're entertainment. And I I think that's wonderful. So, yeah, the, I just think that the sheer number of opportunities that are out there is is what's really changed because it used to be four times a year one day and hope that the matches were good in the semi-finals yeah there are some local stores here in the seattle area like card kingdom and mox boarding house and geek fortress up in snohomish also doing these uh live streams and right. and it makes a big difference yeah and look you can you can watch magic seven days a week and that's the other thing wizards of the coast for whom i work uh, though i'm not full-time there i'm a freelance contractor so i'm not speaking for them but i do think it's important to make the point that wizards are trying to do something slightly different to almost anyone else who is uh, doing streaming magic content in that if you want i mean we won't actually do this experiment right now but i'm pretty certain at seven o'clock on a monday evening here in seattle if i turn on twitch right now I'm pretty sure I could see at least half a dozen different games of Magic taking place. So seeing Magic is not a problem. But I'm also pretty sure that if I go on Twitch, no one will be talking about the modern GPs that have just happened or Brandon Burton's turn three kill in the final of Grand Prix Indianapolis or Jasper Grimmer getting someone from 9 million life to within three turns of dead at Grand Prix Lille. Nor will they be talking about the world championship and talking about the contenders for that. And I think one of the biggest philosophical differences between Wizards and anyone else in magic coverage, and I don't think this makes Wizards big or clever, it's just the nature of the beast is that everyone else is doing magic that happens to be on a screen. That's what most streaming is. Now, notable exceptions, you look at someone like Kenji Egashira, who turned it into entertainment first, magic second. But almost all the magic content that's available is magic that you get through the medium of 
your laptop screen, your phone screen, your plasma TV screen, whatever. Wizards is a TV show that happens to be about magic. And when I look at the way that we produce GP coverage or PT coverage, if you said to me that instead of the World Championship on Thursday, you wanted me to cover a medical convention, I would know how to do that. And I would deliver you surgeon interviews between operations. We would go down, we'd have a play-by-play and an expert on the colonoscopy that was happening downstairs in Operation Room 3. <laughs> Maybe not the colonoscopy. <laughs> well, who kno- yeah, who knows? Um, but there are ways to do it because what we're, what we're dealing with is fundamental broadcasting. And Wizards has this difficulty, I suppose it is, it's also a wonderful opportunity that we have this Twitch channel and we are not yet a broadcast network. And I think if people under- thought of the Magic Twitch channel as a broadcast network, I think they'd actually get a lot less irritated by some of the stuff that we show. Because when we're being, air quotes, silly, like we did this Magic AM thing at, at, at Grand Prix, which is very lighthearted and you're not learning a ton of strategy, you're just we're just scratching the surface of a few things and teasing you for the weekend ahead. If that was the 10.30 to 11 a.m. college game day, I think people would understand that a lot better than, yes, this is part of the stream. Why are you not showing me more games of Magic? I understand that, that you are trying to innovate what Magic coverage content is as a whole, not just repeating and churning out what is constantly being seen as we stand right now. Yeah, and and also, and to be fair to everyone else who's working on Magic, if I was not working for Wizards, there's no way in the world that I would be spending many, many hours trying to churn out 10-minute feature content pieces. Because you know what takes 10 minutes? 10 minutes of game one. What also takes 10 minutes is two weeks of preparation and shooting and editing and music and so on. Um, so the the value is all in the gameplay. I wouldn't go near a lot of the stuff we do if I was just out in air quotes the the rest of the world just making magic. I would go, well, show me a game. Get me to a game. That's always what you want. But Wizards has a, a different set of priorities, not least because no, no one else can do the stuff that Wizards can do. Oh, it is, it's not certain, Sam, but it's probable that if you rang the Pantheon and said, can I bring a film crew in two days before the Pro Tour to just watch you all test and you tell us everything, they'd probably say, nah, we love the show, but not quite sure we can manage that. Whereas for BDM, those doors are open. So it makes sense that since we have the keys to those doors, we should open them. And if that means that you don't get to see quite as many band company mirrors in standard in the daily as you'd like well twitch exists for you already that lets you do that and we'll show you this instead and so but it it is a balance and we care very deeply about all the audience and it is a constant battle for us to give everyone what they actually want and also what they think they want which isn't always the same thing very interesting rich i also wanted to switch gears and talk about some of the people on coverage mm-hmm. Marshall Sutcliffe, he is like the host extraordinaire. He kind of holds it all down and lays down a foundation for us and also, in a sense, keeps time and pace of the event. Yep. He he is, uh, I would say, our, our principal play-by-play guy. Um, and he is, he is a professional. And that is something that a lot of people miss. Um, because, yes, he, like all of us, will miss a trigger from time to time or a particularly subtle interaction, yes, 
that happens and will continue to happen. But uh, his detailed preparation is is a really big deal. And, you know, ultimately, magic's a game of conversation. And you hang out with your friends. That's what you do at a real-life event. You don't hang out with people you don't like. You hang out with the people you do like. And what we're trying to do, and I think we're pretty successful at, by and large, is inviting people into our, for want of a better term, friendship circle, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And saying, look, we're in a conversation right now. There's me, there's BDM, there's Marshall, there's Louis Scott Vargas, there's Reed Duke, and there's a sixth space in that virtual circle, and it's for you, the viewer. And we want you to feel part of that conversation and not feel like you're an outsider listening into our conversation, but that you're part of it. And Marshall's great at being inclusive. He, um, to use a theatre term, he's every man. Um, you know, he is he is not this unattainable former world champion that you know you're never going to be as good as. Indeed, part of the knock on Marshall is when people feel, oh yeah, well I can I can feel good about myself because I'm I'm better than Marshall. By the way, chances are you're not. Yes, I talked to Kenji Egashira in an episode in season one right. about Marshall, and I said that my prediction is that Marshall is probably one of the biggest sleeper players. Like, I bet Marshall is a beast when it comes to play. Yeah, I mean, especially for Limited, obviously. I mean, that is his his love. And yeah, uh, Mar Marshall, Marshall would do absolutely fine at a Limited-only Pro Tour, for sure. He would hold his own against any random collection of Pro Tour field. That is not to say that if he played Reduke, followed by Andre Strasky, followed by Owen Turtenwald, he would emerge as the 3-0 player at the table, <laughs> um, But which is what the World Championship's like. But yeah, Marshall's very good at magic, and he doesn't feel the need to tell you, which actually says quite a lot. Right. And I also want to talk about Brian David Marshall, BDM, mm -hmm. his yeah. role as the historian. He's like right. the inside guy to all of the pros. Yes. Yeah. Um, between rounds, we are running around frantically sorting out the next deck tech, working out who's coming into the studio, seeing whether our plans are still on track for the lunchtime sort of 30 minute. That's like the halftime show we talked about earlier, if you like. Basically, within five seconds of handing across to the feature matches, to my left at the news desk, BDM is on his phone getting messages from people about the segment we've just done. Uh, hey, have you heard about this deck? Um, have you talked to so-and-so? Hey, BDM, I just got beaten by a guy playing blah. Um, he is... Um, Tim Willoughby is very good at this as well, to be fair. But BDM is undoubtedly the most connected man in magic uh and that's always been true um there's a word i don't know whether, whether you really have this word in in the u.s but in england the word is clubbable um <laughs> which is nothing to do with baby seals i was just about to yeah, say that <laughs> no no um clubbable just, just it's sort of about being convivial but it's more about being trustworthy being open being honest being responsible uh caring being a listener um, right, B BDM uh, and I, um, in particular, care very, very deeply about the people that are involved. So when Alex Hayne doesn't make the World Championship from the 2015-16 season, we know that's a big deal, and we really care and feel very badly for Alex Hayne. We genuinely do. I'm incredibly respectful of the pros because, by and large, I work with people who are 
trying to make me win every round. I have graphics people and lighting people and sound and cameras and uh, and producers and exec producers and directors. And we're all trying to make the best show we can. All the players, every time the pairings board goes up, are about to spend an hour with someone whose sole purpose in life at that point is to make them lose. So, you know, when Owen Turtonwell doesn't win the World Championship in 2015, losing Game 5 to Seth Manfield, the likelihood that I was going to try and talk to Owen in the uh, the podium award ceremony afterwards, it's nil, because I know what's just happened. And Rich, I wanted to ask you about a relative newcomer to the coverage team, and mm-hmm. she is very well adored by yep. the audience, Gabby Sparks. See, when you said she, I thought, now, who can he mean? And it turned out to be Gabby. Yeah, Gabby's terrific. Look, she's, again, here's that word again, professional. This is someone who, um, like people often ask, how do I get into coverage? And that's a hard one to answer how you do get into coverage. One of the ways you don't get into coverage is send an email saying, hi, I'm good at magic. What shows can I do? And we get a lot of those. And that just shows such a profound lack of concept about what coverage is. And also, if we're being straight about it, it's pretty dismissive of what we all do for a living. It's like, hey, I got a couple of hours spare. I dropped out at five and three. Do you want me to just pop in? I'll give you an hour of my time to be awesome for you. Like, well, thank you. That's, that's, I appreciate that. That's, that's nice. Um, but it's about a lot more than that. And Gabby is someone who has chosen, there's that capital C again, chosen to be a professional broadcaster. You know, she's not shifted jobs. She's streaming now. Um, and magic is her profession. She gets up in the morning and she goes to work and work is magic. And that shows, you know, and it is worth saying, whenever I go home after a pro tour and I watch stuff back, I'm sitting there in my office and looking at this giant TV screen and something gets missed on screen. And right along with everyone in chat, I'm like, how is it even possible that you don't know that that is a meh, such and such behemoth or whatever, or that it's has trample or whatever the, the, the error is. And then I remember how that error occurred in the actual event. And in the actual event, Gabby is sitting there. This is true for anyone in the booth. You're sitting there with a headset on in which you can hear one or two other commentators. You have at least two people, Greg Collins and the director, who can simply insert themselves into your ear at any point with, we're going to show you this sideboard first after the first game. So while you're commentating on the back end of game one, you're setting up for the sideboard interviews that you're going to show or whatever it is. Then it's like, yeah, it's the Ultra Pro trailers that we're going to show next. Or you're just checking the run sheet for what promo you're sending people off to. Then you're getting updates from Rashad Miller or Tim Willoughby on the floor with what's happening with the game. You have to your left and right a bank of monitors, only one or two of which may be showing the actual game that you're on at any given time, whilst you're simultaneously trying to watch the overhead of the back table that you know a lot of fans are interested in because you've got a big streamer who's back there that isn't quite a big enough name to be the front table, but you know lots of people really care about, so you're keeping an eye on that for them. And all of that is happening at the moment where you get to say, and um, yeah, now. Did he block? Oh, yeah, the trample, of course. So 
it is a baptism of fire <laughs> going into the, the the PT booth for the first time. And people feel that Gabby's been around for a long time, but she hasn't. She's been do- she's done a couple of shows with us um, at the PT level. And so that learning curve is super tough. And she's doing a great job. And if she's doing a great job now, think how awesome she's going to be as we move forward. Because it takes time. I'm too scared to go back and actually watch Kuala Lumpur. I haven't watched the top eight of Kuala Lumpur, I think, ever. Certainly not all the way through. And I'm pretty sure it would be head in the hands. Oh, God, what am I like? I'm just awful. I am. And at this point, some of your listeners are thinking, yeah, you could do that with the last PT. <laughs> um, but <laughs> hey, um, so yeah, um, it is great to have Gabby on board. And one of the things I wish about magic, and there is going to be a finite point to this, and I don't know where that line is, so I don't have a number for you. But I think a magic tournament room with lots of women players is just a vastly better tournament room than one without lots of tournament women players that's right it's that simple it isn't it isn't about politics or gender politics or equality or respect or deodorant just imagine a room of people which room's better one with two thousand guys or one with five six eight hundred a thousand women it's just better yeah that's right let's represent the human race it'd just be so much better and it's hard because in order to do that we're dealing with humanity mm-hmm. and human beings are quite rubbish at quite a lot of things. And just because you're a magic player doesn't mean that you get to be awesome at everything. Right. And there are some magic players who are not very good at some things. And sometimes those things impact how many women come along to magic tournaments. We need to keep working at that. But it cannot but help that Gabby Sparts, Melissa Datora, Jackie Lee, Without going too deep into gender politics, you look at people like Erin Campbell, for example, and so many, there are so many trans judges. Um, I think we are more inclusive now. And yes, things still go wrong. Yes, they do. And, you know, if you're on Twitter or Reddit or Facebook or pretty much anywhere that people meet, you can still see the things going wrong. But I do think we're in the right direction. And uh, I certainly think that Gabby is. Well, by definition, she is trailblazing. We're in Seattle, not Portland, but still. Um, so, yeah, she's and she's doing great. Rich, you have seen thousands of professional magic players play the highest level magic ever. Do you have any quick tidbits of advice for players aspiring to get onto the pro floor? Play with people that are better than you. Listen to them. Shut up. Nobody cares what you think. Much better to just listen and learn. Play the things you know. Don't be scared to try something new. I appreciate those things sound exactly the opposite of each other, but that's still true. Above all, for tournament play, this isn't about how to play the game. This is about how to play tournaments. Be bored for as long as you can. A lot of people get excited before round one because, hey, look, I'm at a GP. And then a lot of people get excited at two and O because if they win round three, they can play against someone good in round four, you know, like a famous person. And then if they're at four and one, they think, I can make day two here. And then at five and three, they're trying to get into day two or whatever it is. Owen Turtonweld, prime example. The pro line is 11 and four at a GP. Brackets eight and four if you have the three buys. That's his start line. So if he goes 12 and three, he's only actually won one match. 
that in any way matters to him as has he had a good weekend or not. Interesting. He was only one win above that 11-4 line. If he goes 10-5, and five, he's had a disappointing weekend by a match. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, since 13-2, and two, in broad terms, is top eight, he only has to go two wins better than his routine run of the middle 11-4 and four to reach the top eight. And what that means is that when he is at 10-2, and two, it doesn't mean anything to him because he's just starting at 10 and 2. He's now in the range of could be 13 and 2, could be 12 and 3, could still be 11 and 4 or heaven forbid just lose the last three disaster 10 and 5. But at 10 and 2, that's not high oxygen hyperventilating texting everyone at home. That's huh, already got two losses. Yeah, mm, need to win my next three to make the top 8 really. And if you are getting excited before round 1 cuz you're nervous about playing there by the time you get to 10 and 2 and then you play owen you're in big trouble and that's nothing to do with what you know about magic or what deck he's playing or what deck you're playing it's got nothing to do with the cards at all which is what makes magic so glorious you've just chosen to give the pro that edge because you got excited too early when you watch pros sort of stumble over the finish line overwhelmingly it's all about relief that they were able to keep it together right that they were able to stay bored seth manfield was shaking with adrenaline when he won worlds and he was trying to be bored every turn because that was the best way to play the best magic and to give him the chance to have that adrenaline rush when he won and so if you can just stay relaxed stay calm you cannot win you're winning in for the top eight halfway through day one. Can't be done. It's never been done in magic history. It never will. So just relax. Play some magic. Play a bit more. Do what Brad Nelson says. Keep playing magic until they tell you you're not allowed to play magic anymore. The tournament will take care of that for you because there are rules for that. We call it the top eight. We call it day two. There are cutoffs. You don't need to worry about them. Play some magic until someone says, and you're done. Time to go home. Fascinating sage advice. Rich, what advice do you have for newer players just starting off playing the game? Have fun. Have fun. It's the best game in the world. Wherever it's going to take you, you're going to have an amazing journey. I'm unbelievably jealous of you starting out. If you are just starting out, you have chosen or been given an unbelievable opportunity because magic is like no game that has ever existed, maybe ever will exist. There is no depth that you will ever scrape the bottom of to where you feel you've beaten it. It is the ultimate unbeatable game so if you want a lifetime of wonder you have just started out on a journey that does that and if on a rainy tuesday in six months time you want to spend a couple of hours in the company with some elves and some flying angels and some goblin oozes you can have a ton of fun doing that too have fun What wonderful words. Thank you so much, Rich Hagen, for joining us today on kitchen table magic are there any parting words or anything that you'd like the audience to consider People talk about the colour pie uh, in Magic um, and incorrectly assume that there are five colours. They refer to them as white, blue, black, red and green. Actually, Magic is binary. There are two colours. There's blue and then colours that blue players get to counterspell. (laughs) And you should all remember that. Thank you so much. And Rich, where can people find you on the internet? 
On Twitter, I am at MTGRich. I don't use that a lot. Um, I take my responsibility very seriously. So I only put my absolute weapons grade uh, puns up on there. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm on Facebook. Um, you can find me there for sure. Um, and uh, then mostly you can see my smiling face or hear my cackling giggles um, on many, many MTG streams on Twitch. Twitch.tv forward slash magic. Basically, all you need to know for um, coverage purposes. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Rich, for joining me today on Kitchen Table Magic. Sam, thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rich Hagen. Much thanks to Rich for sitting down with me during his busy schedule right before coverage to share with me and the listeners his story. If you're grinding to become an elite player, listen to Rich's advice. There's much to learn in the world of magic, and so always keep an open mind. Go say hi to Rich on Twitter at MTGRich. Rich is also streaming his new show, Magic 365, at twitch.tv slash MTGRich. This episode of Kitchen Table Magic is brought to you by Paragon City Games. Remember everyone, there's a giveaway going on right now for an entire box of Modern Masters 2017. Head on over to facebook.com slash kitchen table magic podcast for the giveaway post by Raffle Copter. Entering is easy. Just follow Paragon City Games on Twitter and Facebook. It's that simple. Extra entry points are awarded if you also follow Kitchen Table Magic on Twitter and on Facebook and if you tweet out the giveaway. One lucky winner will receive a box of Modern Masters 2017. The giveaway ends this Sunday, April 16th, so hurry while you can. In my interview with Rich, he talked about there being a variety of magic content being streamed online, and Paragon City Games is streaming their in-store events weekly with Tuesday Night Legacy at twitch.tv slash paragoncitygames. Remember to spread the love with a like on Facebook and a follow on Twitter for Paragon City Games. They've got great online reviews and that shows their commitment to excellent customer service for their player community. I hope everyone is enjoying Season 2. This is Part 2 of my four-part series with The Coverage Team. My last episode of KTM featured Marshall Sutcliffe, where he opened booster packs of Modern Masters 2015. My new Patreon supporter, Trevor, is getting a signed All Suns Dawn. I want to thank you, Trevor, for supporting the show at the $6 level. If you enjoyed listening to a high-quality podcast featuring a nice guy like me tracking down and interviewing your favorite MTG personalities, then head on over to patreon.com slash kitchen table magic. You know, it's not easy getting all these fancy people to sit down with me. I put in an immense amount of legwork to booking guests for the show. Please support Kitchen Table Magic with just $1, $3, or $6 a month on Patreon. Supporters at the $6 level get special gifts from my interviews. I still have four signed cards available by Marshall Sutcliffe from our Crack-A-Pack. A foil rusted relic, reassembling skeleton, celestial purge, and a foil dread drone. Head on over to patreon.com slash kitchen table magic. And if you sign up as a $6 supporter, you're gonna get one of those signed cards from Marshall. All Patreon supporters get access to behind the scenes show notes for each interview that I've done. Also, I make myself available to supporters and you'll be able to ask me questions and connect with me directly about the show. And exclusively for my Patreon supporters, Rich talked a little bit more about Worlds 2016 that I did not put into this episode. So if you want to listen to that, head on over to patreon.com slash kitchen table magic and become a supporter. Big thanks to my current Patreon supporters, Brian, Marcus, James, Alexander, and now Trevor. Thank you all so much. Thanks to everyone tuning into this week's show. I'm always here to connect with you and answer your questions. 
email me, sam at kitchentablemagic.org. Like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash kitchentablemagicpodcast. Follow me on Twitter at KTM Podcast. The show is on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and mtgcast.com. Coming up in the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic. There was like a week over the summer of 94 where people were like, Brian, this guy wants to know about something called magic. And I'm like, I, I don't, I, I don't know what it is. You know, like, I don't know what this is. And for, for this one week, it was like this, like, really insane concentration of people frantically coming in. Some guy came in and was like, really kind of a little twitchy and a little like, obviously very frustrated that he couldn't find magic. They called me out and I talked to him and I'm like, no, I'm sorry, sir. I don't know what you're talking about. He grabbed me by my lapels and like picked me up and like shook me against the wall, like violently accosted me. He's like, why can't I find this game anywhere? I just want some more cards. What the hell? You know, like, boom, boom. I'm like, you know, and like, uh, you know, people are like, uh, should we call the police? I'm like, no, we should call our distributor. <laughs> <laughs> You know, we should we should order this game, whatever it is. That was Brian David Marshall, official magic historian and commentator, getting violently accosted back in 1994. BDM has been there since the beginning. He shares early stories about the magic community and his famed magic store, Neutral Ground. Brian David Marshall is the third installment of my four-part series interviewing the coverage team of magic. I hope you'll join me and BDM all on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic. <laughs>